Welcome, everybody, to the Great Scott Podcast. We have a very special one-hour podcast for you today, featuring the prolific and award-winning music author Jake Brown. Jake is responsible for many authorized collaborations, including books about Hart, Merle Haggard, Rick Rubin, Dr. Dre, and Motorhead. Mike and Jake discuss his 50th book, Behind the Boards, Nashville. First things first, uh, Jake, um, congratulations on your 50th book. How, how, how does one, I mean, is it a long, treacherous journey to write 50 books? What, what's the process no. like? Um, well, you know, I, I did a WGN, uh, the Chicago TV channel thing the other day, and I grew up watching that channel, so I love it. And, and I didn't know if they were going to rebroadcast the story or whatever, but they did with a headline that said, um, I wrote my first book on a bet. And that's actually true. Um, so when I was 11, I went to see my mother, Tina, uh, who's also a painter, um, and was where I got a lot of my creative DNA from. Both my parents were extraordinarily supportive of me. Though I started out a musician. Um, even going back a little further than that, I started playing piano with five by ear. I don't read music at all. And I expanded that to drums and guitar and bass. Studied at a classical music conservatory in high school as their only by ear player um, for the Washington Conservatory of Music. And then uh, at the same time, I was drumming in bands and playing bass and guitar and other things to find a little home recording. So I was a musician. And I moved to Los Angeles. Uh, I saw this Bon Jovi concert. You can edit that out of order. But basically, I saw that Bon Jovi concert. We had side stage seats. They were the worst seats. But you could see everything going on backstage. And it, like, fascinated me to where I had, like, one of those, what I call kind of proverbial Ed Sullivan, like, I saw Ed Sullivan, the Beatles and Ed Sullivan moment where you're like, ah, yeah. I want to do that, you know. And, and, and so even though, you know, I've been in, I was in bands in high school and in college, and then I moved to Los Angeles uh, right out of college with my drum set, guitar, futon, and cat. Um, got a job at a record label called Cleopatra Records. Uh, and um, I moved out to Los Angeles with the intention of, you know, getting in a band, getting a job at a record label. Um, I had a band right out of moving there, and we you know, had a Hollywood and Ivar rehearsal space, and went through the whole motions of all that as a drummer while working at this record label, which is where I really learned uh, a lot about uh, how the, the business worked. I worked for eight months between um, those that one and Geffen for a little bit. And then I basically uh, moved back to New York and started my own label. And the long story short is out of that, you deal with a lot of publicists. And that's, you know, just in the course of writing, I always wrote. I always wrote, whether it was sort of love letters from my buddies or their girlfriends or whatever it was, you know, uh, occasional paper here and there, you know, like in high school or whatever, but for somebody. But um, anyway, the point I'm making is uh, I had just always done it, but I had no ambition to do it. And then in college, I got on an ADD before there was really ADD, this was back in 1995, one of these untimed, they was, they rather than make me take tests, they just had me write papers. So I just kind of got used to writing these long-form papers, and this, then I started writing press releases for this label. I met a publicist that dared me to write a book, and I told her, I don't want to write a book. I don't have any desire or ambition to write a book, but I'd read growing up a lot of Danny Sugarman books and a lot of books like Mansion on the Hill, which is about the record business and Hitmen, and books that were more of a sort of, I would guess, call them academic nature in the sense that they were like um, 
not like nerdy how-tos, but they were all these stories about how all these 70s and 80s, these records back in the 70s and 60s got made and how David Geffen started Asylum Records, who was an enormous influence of mine. Um, so I always, like, growing up, more studied the labels, kind of like the producers and, and the songwriters as much as I did sort of the band members. And so anyway, uh, I wrote a, I, I told her I've always wanted to write a book on Suge Knight, who was after a record studio. And at the time, he was going to be getting out of prison in about a year. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool if we could sell this and get the publisher to release it in real time with the book's publication? Um, and we actually pulled that off. Uh, a guy named Tony Rose, who runs a company called Amber Books, um, and his wife, Yvonne, gave me my first publishing deal at 24. And um, so right, like, my first time out. And that book kind of became a thing. It was weird. It took on, like, a life of its own. It was in, like, the Vibe Top 20... Um, you know, hot hip hop things of the week, and it had some notoriety behind it as well. And no one, interestingly, since then, that book has followed me my whole career. Nobody since then has written a book on Shed Night. So I'm the only biographer of record. I did an eight part, a six part uh, uh, BET Death Row Chronicle special in 2018, um, and I was the biographer of record. And it was very surreal because they secretly taped interviews with Suge in LA County Jail when he was supposed to be on a gag order. Oh, that was crazy. Yeah, so they had, like, me talking, and then it would juxtapose my voice with Suge's voice. It was the most surreal experience. I've done a few TV things for the years. I, I choose them carefully, but that one I was so happy I agreed to do because, and I was honored to be invited to be part of because everybody was in that thing. Snoop was in it. Uh, but, but to see Suge, I actually, you know, to hear him actually talking and, and, and validating all these points I was making were reasonably relief, too, because... At that point, he knew he was going to jail for the rest of his life, and he had nothing to lose. And so that's like the rawest death row. I think 15 million people watched that between all of the, you know, the people that watched it at the time, the people that watched it on DVD, on streaming, on YouTube. I'm counting that as total views, but it, it became like a thing. But it illustrated why that book at the top of my career was such a lucky one. Um, and, and that, you know, once that kind of uh, did okay, they were like, well, do you want to write another one? And I said, all right, you know, for the same publisher. And I thought initially it was something I would just do like that. You know what I mean? Like so often, you know, and R. Kelly, uh, <laughs> who at the time I thought was a total scumbag. And at the time that tape had come out, that horrible initial tape, uh, oh, yeah, you know, yeah. tape and all that. And I thought, man, this guy is guilty as all get out. So I agreed to write the book, but I wrote it. I wrote like a scathing, um, and, you know, memoir. I mean, it, it called him a sexual predator, and, and it used all these court documents and stuff. I mean, we printed all these court records and had all these testimonials. I don't do anonymous sources, so it was a really well-sourced book. And the publisher said, look, you need to rewrite this or we're not going to put it out. And so we had about a year-long standoff, and I finally agreed to do it. I, at that point, sort of saw this as a way to expand, you know, what I was doing in the record industry. I didn't think it would turn into this. But the long story short is I moved to Nashville in 2003 with two published books. Um, and 18 years later, I, I just hit 50. So I think the importance of that was that those two books made enough money that I was able to like, wow, I could make about a thousand a month in royalties. Um, and, and then kind of book sales, things were different back then because you sold books on websites along with stores and, there were other uh, ways to sell books than there are now, uh, more right. and certain more revenue-based ways to do it. In any event, I wound up moving here. That R. Kelly book hadn't come out yet, but at the time that I moved here, I said, you know, I, I would love to sort of 
write a behind-the-scenes series called Behind the Boards. And uh, so I started working on that series in 2003, interviewing record producers, and it was amazing to me because some of the early names, you know, the first two volumes of that series came out through Hal Leonard years later. But I spent the, the, that first seven years of the millennium interviewing um, all these records. I mean, everybody, Jack Douglas and, and, you know, names that might not mean anything on their face, but the bands associated with them were like Jimi Hendrix, Aerosmith's producer, Jim, you know, uh, uh, and then you had like, you know, Eddie yeah. Craver for Jimi Hendrix and Bob Ezrin for Pink Floyd. And I was like, all right, we have some teeth here. Bones Howe, Tom Waits' producer, that was an honor. And a lot of these guys hadn't talked to anybody in depth before, and I asked why. And they said, well, every time people approach us about these kind of books, they only want to focus on, like, you know, the 30-second clip answer about that one hit. They don't want to talk about the whole studio process. And I thought, well, that's interesting. So I, and I'm being a producer myself, and not at their level, but working in the studio and being a musician and playing a bunch of instruments, I knew how to talk to these guys in a little bit more of a musical way, if you will. So the interviews were like three-hour-long conversations, and that just kind of like morphed into the specialty that I have done since. Um, so anyway, I, in 2005, I did it in the studio. Uh, I started another series that I, I now own the trademark on called In the Studio, and that one was uh, with the Tupac Shakur estate. And Asini Shakur, Tupac's mother, authorized that book. And um, I was able to interview like you know, legendary, now dead, now passed away, rest in peace, Johnny J, uh, who produced all that, you know, death row stuff, um, the majority of it anyway, sure. hundreds of songs, uh, you know, uh, uh, Big Sykes from Thug Life, I mean, just really amazing names. So that was kind of like another one. So I was like, all right, here and now I have Behind the Board and uh, uh, in the studio. And what amazed me the most, and I'm not crediting or not crediting anyone with not thinking of it first, because they were such obvious names at the time, I thought there's no way that this name will be available. There's no name that. And if you're a writer trying to brand yourself, you have to have trademark series. You just have to um, in this kind of specialty. So, like even for dummies, is a trademark series way bigger than mine. But what I'm saying is like that's an example for just generic readers. For dummies, is something someone came up with, and it's now one of the most popular. You know, chicken soup for the soul. These types of things. So I was thinking in that context, what if I could tell the full story of these guys, how they first at three years old discovered music and tape recorders and then how, you know, the first studios they worked at and what they did wrong and what they did right and what, you know, the first bands that they worked with and all these lessons started coming out of it, which sort of also gave a reading audience where you had the one side, if you're a fan of these bands, some of my later series is the same, like Behind the Boards, but the most recent one, Behind the Boards National. It's out now. If you're a country music fan, there's 300 number one hits in that book. Wow. And it's oh. 30 of the biggest record producers in the history of country music, virtually all of them. And so you not only get their backstories and what inspired them to come to town to try to be in the business and they wound up producers, but also if you're just a generic country fan and you're just more interested in Tim McGraw songs and Luke Bryan songs and Carrie Underwood and how they were produced and created in the studio, you can listen along on Spotify and stream along as you read about them. And then on the other hand, if you are an aspiring producer, there's a, I mean, a Bible's worth, pardon the, the, the term, of academic uh, sort of advice on how to get in and stay in the business, what not to do, how to produce records, how they got a certain drum sound, all that. Well, so the In the Studio series has the same concept. You get, I've written books, uh, that sort of from Tupac when Anna Nancy Wilson from Heart granted me interviews and we wrote a book called Heart in the Studio. 
then that kind of really put me on the map as a rock writer in the first place. And I was fortunate the same year um, to sell Lemmy Kilmeister from Motorhead on a Motorhead in the studio, um, it, you know, book. And that was fortunately, in, in hindsight, a blessing because Lemmy didn't do a lot of books. And uh, he talked about how all those records were made and, you know, like everything. And then that led to... Um, others in that series, Dr. Dre, Rick Rubin in the studio, Dr. Dre in the, in the studio, um, Tori Amos in the studio, which won a, a writing award, um, my only writing award. Uh, <laughs> and, and yeah, man, and it was a really cool series because it allowed me to just jump around the map stylistically. And I guess that's another point of advice. I'll touch on these throughout, but, you know, you never want to pigeonhole yourself as an author in the standpoint of past your specialty. So what that means is you might be a fiction series, but like if you look at Lawrence Block, he writes like the Killer series, which I love, Hitman series, but he writes a ton of others. If you're you know, Tom Clancy, you have your Jack Ryan, he's got 20 other book series. Stephen King, and these are big names, way beyond me, but I'm just sort of comparing them in my niche, uh, writing music biographies. I, I, I modeled myself after those writers like I grew up reading, where you know Elmore Leonard had a bunch of westerns before he started doing you know, his, his, his signature stuff, like, you know, that I grew up reading. Um, but so that the, the in the studio series allowed me to keep a theme and keep a trademark name, but yet jump around anywhere I wanted to on the map stylistically. Well, that led me to meeting Joe Satriani, who's one of the, you know, he's the best-selling instrumental guitarist of all time, but known for surfing with the alien and, uh, you know, all these amazing um, instrumental albums that took music where it had never been before. And my pitch to him was, nobody has ever really explored in depthly how you do this. And so it started out as an in-the-studio book, and I was amazed when he granted me, you know, the interviews in the book. But we wound up turning that into, like, uh, a whole memoir. It's called Strange Beautiful Music, a musical memoir. And it became a best-selling book, and uh, it's been published in a bunch of countries, and, and it, it, he, fans bring that up to him all over the world at the G3 concerts. So that was the other part of my of my luck, um, was that I started getting... In, in the first five, four... Uh, by 2005, there were four... 50 Cent, Jay-Z, Biggie Smalls, and Tupac all got licensed to a company called Transworld in Japan. And so I started getting books published overseas. The Levy book got licensed in France and in Italy. The Rick Rubin book got licensed in Italy. The publisher of Heart was a Canadian-based publisher, so that book was not only out in North America, but then Rick Rubin in the studio and Tori Amos um, also were out in other countries. So uh, that was a very fortunate part of my branding. The company that did the Motorhead book was in England. So inevitably, those books are going to come out to a North American audience. But if you can try to market, you know, broad base your reading, um, you know, your reading audience, you know, these bands have global fan bases. So my logic was, let's try to get these books out around Japan. I was very lucky. I've had some other series, Beyond the Beats, my rock drummer series, and Prince in the studio are both just recently published in Japan. Um, so anyway, it, you know, you know, it just kind of took on a life of its own. And I worked in the record industry for years by then, so I was always meeting people. And in the course of writing these books, you meet other people, and either I'm fortunate the fact that they liked something else I'd written, or they like the fact that I give everybody, like, like this National Songwriter book is a great example. Some of these chapters are 45 pages, and they're 45 pages because the catalog is that long of hits George Strait and Tony Brown made, but we also give, you know, I promised them and gave them my word, as I did everyone else I've ever interviewed, that we don't do fluff stuff. We go behind the scenes as deeply as they want to go. Now, we don't talk about drugs and as much, and we don't talk about women and, and bands breaking up and all that drama crap, but we do talk about all of the fundamental behind-the-scenes things that are going to creating 
the finished product that you hear on the radio or see on CMT or, you know, wherever your input comes from and, you know, Spotify or whatever your generation, you know. Uh, so anyway, I was very lucky that there was a specialty that kind of developed of being able to tell the human side of these stories, but also amazingly, like I, another series I write called National Songwriter, I pitched to that Joe Satriani publisher and actually we made it part of the deal. Uh, whereas if I delivered them the Joe book, if they really wanted, they would agree to put out, publish my first National Songwriter book. Well, that, you know, in country music, there's an example. And you can go through and edit this as you like. I'm just trying to give you a lot of background. And in and, and, and country music, as an example, um, it's, it's, if you look at a music video, and there's not many music videos anymore, but if you look at music videos, growing up, there was always the band name, the song, the album, the label, and the music director, uh, the music video director. In country, it's the only genre where it, where it includes the songwriter. That shows you how important, and I was giving a tire change in 2012, and I saw a video, a Luke Bryan video, and I went, man, that's really interesting, you know? Like, there's th that, that songwriter leaped out to me. So, amazing. Again, dumb luck. No one had the book series titled National Songwriter. And I was like, this is, you know what I mean? And then, out of the woodwork came all these amazing songwriters. So, we're, there were 20 in the first book, including Willie Nelson and Merle Haggard in Freddie Powers' chapter. Uh, Sonny Curtis wrote I Fought the Law. There, it, and then, Volume 2 had 34 songwriters. Um, and then, I did a whole chapter on the music publishing industry, where I interviewed all of the music publishers. And so these books, I mean, this has become a signature series for me in town here. Uh, and the point is, like, yeah, these books are designed to give readers who, whether they're fans, whether they're aspiring songwriters, uh, whether they're aspiring producers, musicians, it's designed to kind of give you sort of a, a combination of the entertainment of hearing about your most famous stars and how they work behind the scenes, creating your, your you know, these soundtracks of your live hits. But it also... Uh, it, you know, gives you a roadmap to how to and not to um, <laughs> go about trying to chase that career. And uh, and I guess as someone myself who, you know, I, this is the, you know, the twenty the 21st year I've worked full-time in the music business, but um, I'm, you know, I write three and four books at once, and I'll shut up in a minute so you can ask me something, but it just gives you an illustration of how hard you have got to constantly work to stay relevant and stay commercially viable, even as an author with 50 Every couple of years, I have to have something new come out so that I can, you know, kind of remind, because there's so many kids that are so much as talent, you know, I don't say talented myself, but that are that are out there competing with me, you know what I mean, that are new writers. A lot of them grew up, you know, reading my stuff, and they, they'll, they'll hit me on Twitter or somewhere and joke about it, but it's amazing, like, you know, I, I'm proud of that, that I, that I maybe had a little bit of it, and, you know, because some of them are like, hey, man, I read, read the Tupac book, or I read the Rick Rubin book, or I read the you know, this book, and some of these books go back 15 years, and I'm like, God, you know, and I'm 44 now. Um, but my point is, I never, I never ever rest on my laurels, because if you start to do that, you're always going to be competing with, you know, the, the, the next generation, even if some of them are like friends or fans of yours, or readers, I don't want to call them fans, but people that read my stuff, you know, you still, um, uh, it's just always chomping at your heels, you know what I mean? And I'll shut up and let you ask a question now. But Oh, no worries, no worries. Um, so out of all your, uh, well, let's talk about your, your 50th book here for a moment. Um, uh, tell us a little bit about what, what it's about. Um, did you go all out on your 50th book since this was kind of a uh, a, a, a momentous occasion for, for you as an author? Um. Absolutely. It was, well, I'll tell you that story. My dog died in 2018. 
Uh, my, my blessed, beautiful, beloved Cocker Spaniel Hanover, Hanny as I call him, I dedicate the book to him, and uh, I was just in a deep depression, you know, of the type that, that you hear about people getting in when they lose a pet, and it was just, I couldn't, just, it was the first time I'd ever just been, like, I've always worked, you know, seven days a week and really hard, and you know, my parents had a great work ethic, and, but I'm just saying, I was paralyzed by it, and so... I said, I gotta do something to pull myself out of this funk. And uh, so uh, I'd always wanted to do a third behind the boards. It's been almost 10 years before this, eight years since the last one. And so um, I made a deal with myself. I said, I'm gonna email my top five favorite country producers. And I didn't actually have that many because I was a fan of country, but not as nearly in depthly. But with the National Songwriter book series, I got educated a lot more on, um, you know, who the, who the current guys were, who, and some of them I'd interestingly interviewed, um, and they said, hey, man, I'd love to, to talk about production if you ever do a, a, a producer's book. I said, okay, this was even earlier now. So, uh, long story short, um, I interviewed, I emailed Dave Cobb's manager, and Dave Cobb, you know, doesn't know it is like the modern equivalent of Rick Rubin. It, it, you know, Nick, Rick Rubin's sort of like heir apparent. I mean, this guy is amazing. He, you know, did Chris Stapleton Tennessee Whiskey, which is, of course, you know, launched his career, but he's done Sergio Simpson and um, Jason Isbell and Shooter Jennings, and he just did the Stars Born soundtrack. He's just an iconic already uh, producer. He's changed the face of country music forever. And I thought, man, if this guy would sign on to the series, I would know that it, it's like a sign, because what happens when you drop lines in the water for these things is you sample out four or five names, and if those people sign on, then you know you're going to get more, because they want all these guys want to be in each other's sort of company in these kinds of settings. Thankfully. So uh, he signed on. Paul Worley signed on. Who of course, discovered, signed, and produced Lady Annabellum, now Lady A, and Dick Kuchich, and uh, Van Perry, and Big and Rich, and all sorts of groups. Uh, there was two or three more. Frank Lydell, Miranda Lambert, a uh, longtime producer, um, and uh, a couple others. And that gave me the... Shane McNally, of course, is on Songland now, uh, and Josh Osborne have a chapter in this book. Um, and then there were these track guys, you know, so so what I'm getting at is initially I thought, okay, 15 will be enough, and then it grew to 20, and then it grew to 25, and then as, as, as late as the spring, before the COVID shutdown, thank God, I was interviewing uh, Tony Brown, who produced George Strait, you know, got like 40 number one hits, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and Frank Rogers, who did Brad Paisley, and... Um, some late, some late uh, names that, that, you know, Dave Cobb gave me another hour to talk about A Star is Born, which he produced. And so it just took on this life of its own and became kind of an event book in the sense of, you know, I, I like like Buddy Cannon, who's, uh, I mean, outside of Nashville, maybe not as big a name as you'd think, but he produces Willie Nelson's last 20 years of records. He produces all of Kenny Chesney's stuff, um, you know, since they started. And that impressed me, too. Some of these guys, uh, you know, have had long, long 25-year associations, uh, multi-decade associations with the artists they produce, and that's rare in any other genre, really, um, to get that kind of, you know, to get that sort of uh, longevity. A lot of times rock bands work with one band for a couple records, and they bounce to another band, and they bounce to another. So there's a sort of rhythm to country's record-making that is definitely unique, and that piqued my interest. I said, okay, how many of these guys? We said Jason Aldean and Michael Knox. They've had 15 years. Luke Bryan and Jeff Stevens, and now Jody Stevens, the father-son team. There's another 15 going on 20 years. Tim McGraw and Byron Gallimore, 25 years. Kenny Chesney and Buddy Cannon, 25 years. 
Um, you know, Lydell, Frank Lydell and Miranda Lambert were 15 years together, Frank Rogers and Brad Paisley. So these are just some examples of this unique thread within that wove itself within country music of these long-term working relationships. And as I've lived here for 18 years, going on 19 years, the trust level that is, that is implicitly required and given by these stars. Think about that. If you're, you know, I'll give you a great example. In country music, and it might be unique to other genres, I'm pretty sure it is because I've written in all of them on this side of the producing, uh, you know, there's an A&R aspect that uh, the producers are often charged with selecting the like. You know, they, George Strait's producer, Tony Brown, said he used to listen to 3,000 songs between each record to whittle it down to the 30 that Strait heard. Strait would listen to a lot, too, but that they picked from to make that final 15-year track listing. Jason Aldean, 2,000 songs. Tim McGraw, two to 3,000 songs. Uh, well, that shows you off my National Songwriter Series, those songwriters, that shows you how prolific these people are on Music Row, working day in and out. There's a whole industry here, a songwriting industry, just to create. There's two number one charts for country music, so they constantly have to be coming up with new number one. They change by the week in some cases. On the other hand, we had guys in this book sort of give you the bookends. There's those long-term organic go in the studio with a live session band and, and, and knock out your records. There's also a new generation called Track Guys. Track guys are guys who come from the digital generation where Pro Tools took over the way that, that, that uh, records are made, you know, especially here in town where, where a, a single guy could, you know, all multi-instrumentalists like Ross Copperman and Chris DeCessano and Zach Crowley produced Sam Hunt and uh, Ray Riddle and Luke Laird, who did, you know, Casey Musgraves or Shane McNally, just the list goes on and on. Um, these people, these guys, are Stefano with Carrie Underwood, Chris Stefano, these guys are so talented that they can record an entire band by themselves. And there's and the, the samples are so good within Pro Tools and Logic and these digital programs that they can uh, they can go into. They can pick out drum samples. Joey Moy who does Florida Georgia Line and does Nickelback before that with live drums. He programs all of Florida Georgia Line's drums. So. The digital advent really, really made it such that now it's a hybrid where these uh, these, these older producers have to kind of uh, compete with that, you know. And and so that was the other end of the spectrum of producers in town here were people who had, um, you know, one-man bands who then teamed up in a room with Carrie Underwood and boom, there they walk out with a hit that afternoon. Uh, Dirk Spentley and Ross Kofferman on, on Black, which is a huge crossover hit for him. Luke Bryan... Uh, when Jody Stevens came into the fold and that, that song Play It Again kind of became his big signature and Crash My Party and That's My Kind of Night and Country Girl Shake It For Me. These were transformative songs. They brought rhythm and programming and hip-hop elements that are now mainstays in country. So everybody in this book, you have 40 years. It goes back to the 70s and the honky-tonk era with, you know, Mo Bandy and, and Ray Baker. And uh, and so the, the the book gives you a basically a history of country music from behind the border or from the studio side, but it also gives you that history from the other side of the glass. As many of the people in this book started out as as players, Norbert Putnam, who produced Margaritaville's in the book, he was Elvis Presley's bass player. Tony Brown was Elvis Presley's keyboard player on his last sessions. Um, and then for years and years, a lot of these guys, Paul Worley, Dan Hoff, the great Dan Hoff, is in this book. Um, Dan Huff has played guitar on everything. He played on all the Whitney Houston and Top Gun soundtrack. He's played on, you know, all the way over to country. Um, you got guys like Jesse Frazier who works with Thomas Rhett. Um, it's just, you know, so there's really just a really eclectic, colorful cast of, of personalities these producers are. But they've worked so long with these artists. I give you those facts, you know, those histories of some of how long these guys have worked together because it shows you how well they know them. And therein 
anyone reading it really does get a sense of the stars as well as they developed and then became superstars and, and learned the craft of recording and how to become, you know, professional studio singers. And, and these producers, a lot of them were playing sessions for years, decades before they started producing. So they were on the other side of the board, they, you know, out in the live room and part of the band. So it makes them that much better because they played for guys like Jim Ed Norman, probably who was in this book as well. Um, and learn from the best, Jimmy Bowen. So there's names you hear in this book, even that have passed away or who have Alan Reynolds, you know, the Garth Brooks, and he's in his 80s now. There's people that couldn't quite get to talk to us because they're just a little bit, you know, kind of past doing that stuff. But uh, they're well, well represented here. So hopefully it gives the country fan a rounded look at country music from the, like a 3D look at, at the business. You know, everybody uh, in there has uh, produced pretty much all of the soundtrack of our lives kind of cliché. It, it really is true here, whether you're it's Tim McGraw and Byron Gallimore, his producer worked together 25 years, or Kenny Chesney and Buddy Cannon, who worked together 25 years, or, you know, Luke Bryan and Jeff Stevens, who worked together for almost 20 years, or, um, God, Jason Aldean and Michael Knox, 15 years, Miranda Lambert and Frank Liddell, 15 years. So there's these incredible common threads that weave throughout the fabric, I guess you'd say, of country music's uh, you know, produced history of hits that, that, that and I was talking to somebody earlier today about this too in another interview, the fact that trust is such a rare commodity in the music business. And I, why I cite these long-term relationships is because they're such great examples of the trust, the implicit trust that's necessary between artists and a record, uh, you know, artists and producers, not only to sort of start out working together, but then to continue working together. And then as you get into situations where like, say for instance, uh, Kenny Chesney, the co-producer now on all his records with Buddy, that's an, that's a sort of growth too, because a lot of producers historically, especially in country, if you go back, really didn't want to let go of those reins, and it's really it reflects a shift in the paradigm that in more recent uh, decades and years it's become that kind of a co-produced dynamic. And then you have people in the book like Clint Black, who started out with James Stroud, who's one of the greatest to ever do it, and then you know kind of learned when he needed to learn, went out on his own, has been producing his own records the last twenty years. So you, you, and there's other examples, but but the co-production element, like Dirk Bentley and Ross Copperman, um, is another more modern example. You know, is really important. Um, and and you know, then you get other dynamics. We were talking about also track guys who can literally produce the entire song by themselves. Like Chris Stefano or Zach Crowley works with Sam Hunt, uh, or Luke Laird who works with Casey Musgraves, or um, or has worked with, with Casey Musgraves quite a bit on pageant material and, and trailer, same trailer, different park, and that merry-go-round, that massive first hit of hers. Um, Dirk Bentley, Russ Copperman, who I mentioned, uh, Joey Moy, and Florida Georgia Line. And you know, Joey Moy comes from a rock background. He produced Nickelback for years, and he can literally sit there because he's tuned and recorded live drums for so long. He knows how to program. All of the Florida Georgia Line songs, they're, they're for the most part programmed drums, but you'd think they were live drums because he's so good at what he does. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and then, there, you know, there's another dynamic in this book that we were kind of touching on today that refreshed my memory on the fact that, you know, for this generation of, uh, you know, latest generation of kids come, growing up, aspiring to kind of follow in these guys' footsteps that grew up you know, really without the benefit a lot of times of starting out like a lot of these guys did as a runner or a session player on the other side of the board or, or you know, an engineer, an assistant engineer, where they learned how to actually mic a drum set, say, as an example. This book is also a really great reference guide in those respects because in case, you you, you know, you need a reference guide, even just so how do they get that sound, that song, because you want to recreate it on some new record you're working on. There's also, it's, it's, it covers several different bases. It's like for the aspiring producer, uh, 
engineer. It also, you know, if, if you're just kind of uh, trying to get advice on how to come to town in this modern day, you've got a whole bunch of guys now that are the big hit makers. So really no stone is left unturned and no corner of Music Row is left undiscovered or talked about. And I'm really proud of that because, you know, it, it takes six months, uh, six, you know, 600 pages is uh, it's pretty voluminous. And, and, and if you're a, so there's something for everybody in this book. If you're a country fan and you just want to read along about your favorite hits while you listen to them on Spotify as far as how they were made. But the idea is really to take uh, readers inside the studio, sit them next to the producer at the console and give them a real understanding of, you know, pull the curtain back on how this all works. So, uh, well, a couple of questions come to mind. First off, are you working on your 51st book? And secondly, uh, what was number one? Which book was number one for you? Suge Knight was the very first one uh, that I ever wrote. It was in 2000, and a company named Amber Books and a gentleman named Tony Rose, his wife Yvonne, gave me my uh, sort of break in the book business. And I had written uh, hip-hop for the first three or four uh, years. I did books on everybody, 50 Cent, Biggie Smalls, Jay-Z, uh, Tupac. The Tupac Shakur book was authorized by a senior Shakur in the estate, which was really rare and blew me away. And that launched my uh, In the Studio series, which is a trademark series. I own it. It's got 15 books in it. I've co-written those with like Ann and Nancy Wilson from Heart, uh, Lenny Kilmeister from Motorhead. Um, I've written them on Rick Rubin, Dr. Dre, Tori Amos, uh, Tom Waits, uh, ACDC and Iron Maiden. They just span all the stylistic spectrum. And the idea of that series is that you could have kind of a banner uh, brand, if you will, say, like in the studio, but then underneath it, right within any genre, because you could stick any name in front of those three words, um, and as I've done for years, and um, Prince in the studio was a recent one, as an example. Um, so, yeah, the, the idea with these books is just to try to take readers behind the scenes of how these records are made, and, and either by firsthand interviewing the artists that made them, as well as their producers, their engineers, their band members, and just give you, like, a sort of 3D look at that process from a lot of different points of view of the people who were involved. Because while you only hear three and a half minutes of a finished product, trust me, it took far more time in the kitchen, so to speak, to get that meal ready, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And and as far as 51st, uh, I write three or four things at once. Uh, but in terms of the release, uh, the next year is going to be, I just signed with a, with a really, really great agent, Frank Wyman at the Folio Literary Agency. They did The Irishman, the Netflix, and bunch of great books, Dolly Parton's book, uh, Loretta Lynn's book, et cetera. So I'm really excited they're going to be repping me from now on. And uh, we're shopping uh, National Songwriter 3 and 4. There's another 40 writers between those two books. There is 60 writers between the first two. So it's pretty much definitive. Um, and we've got, got Teddy Riley's book coming up. He's a legendary R&B hip-hop producer, kind of invented New Jack Swing. Well, did invent New Jack Swing. And there's some great guys in that book, like Bobby Brown and Cool Modi and Big Daddy Kane and Andre Harrell and Sean Combs and Puff Daddy did our forward, our Diddy, I guess he goes by now. Um, Keith Sweat's in that book. And and, I, and then there's a, a second and third volumes of Beyond the Beats, which I interview all the rock drummers um, you can name are in that second book and third book. I think we talked about the first one the first time. And the idea with these different series and to continue expanding them is just there's that many people to talk to, or I wouldn't have more books to write in that in that, those columns. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, um, and then I'm also doing, <laughs> excuse me, I'm also doing a book with, <laughs> I, I uh, went to this summer camp for six years as a kid called 40 Legends. It was open 25 years total. And I think this might be the first authorized memoir on a summer camp, but <laughs> I've interviewed the family that, that ran it, uh, all the campers and counselors and, and everything. And that's sort of more a passion project, but 
kind of a life statement book for me because that place meant so much to me and so many thousands of other kids that went there. So we're, it's just I just try to, you know, jumping around in those genres <clears throat> in other businesses might be dangerous. Um, like if you're a recording artist, it really can get can get challenging if you're trying to step outside of your, um, you know, your box too much if you have one style that you're known for. But fortunately, as a writer, especially if you have different series that you write under, you can work with a variety of different styles. And then that also makes you more appealing as a reader to, uh, and known as a, as, a, as a writer to a lot of different demographics of readers, be they country music fans, be they rock fans, be they hip-hop fans, and that in turn ensures uh, career longevity <laughs> that you get to keep doing this. Now, that I do. now have you uh, written, um, has music primarily been the books that you've written or have you branched out? Um, uh, well, I stay, I'm a music biographer. I mean, that's my definition of my niche of writing, and I, I don't really step too much outside of it. Uh, we're adapting the Freddie Powers, Merle Haggard books, Free of the D3, to a, a film right now, the screenplays uh, I wrote last year with uh, Freddie Powers' widow, Catherine, and that was, uh, we had everything set up for that before the COVID thing came along and gutted our funding and everything, but we have a great director, we have a great um, team working on that. Um, so, I, I mean, that would be an expansion, I guess, beyond just... Um, but again, if I were to have any future past writing books or along with it, um, I would love it to be in music biopics because it's, you know, on films, it's just a natural um, sort of translation. And I also am a published songwriter uh, and, and record producer myself, not of these guys' stature. I do more rock and EDM and kind of Beckish, kind of mixed hybrid stuff. But So I'm either in a studio working on music or I'm here working on books. And uh, yeah, I, you know, I've also ghostwritten <laughs> over the years here and there. Um, just kind of as an extra income stream. And I've done about 30 books uh, over 20 years that I've ghosted. And those have a lot of times been in, um, you know, different genres, be they uh, memoir, be they self-help, be they business, be they um, life coach, uh, just, you know, all over the map. Um, and I think that's really important for any writer who want to have a career. You have to be able to, to, to take that muscle and apply it to different um topics uh and and you know the more work you do i always had a, a rule that's kind of a rule in the record business to say if like you're a young engineer never or a young guitar player or whatever never turn a gig down no matter if it isn't exactly what you want at first um yeah there's session players in this book that you know played on everything and then they sort of you know found their way to the producer chair like paul Worley and dan huff and that experience is invaluable in learning how to communicate with musicians when you're producing same with your writing um, you know, you might be handed a project by a literary agent. That's happened too to me. But they're like, hey, do you think you'd be interested in writing this? And it might be something a little bit outside of your box, even though it's still within your genre. Um, say yes to it. Uh, you know, you can never do anything but grow uh, if you if you continue to challenge yourself. And in the longer you do it, and I mean, I've been doing it 20 years. So for me, it, you know, it's kind of a, I mean, the writing part's never been challenging for me. It's always the kind of prep, all the interviewing. I spent about half my life interviewing people. And that's another great skill set that you develop um, along the way, like yourself as a, as a, you know, as a host. I mean, you know, the more interviews you do, the more kind of <clears throat> diversity of, you know, conversational topics you've had and can draw upon to, you know, bring up something new or, or expound on it if it comes up in a conversation. And same thing with books. Um, people are sharing their life stories, and I guess that's the thing that I enjoy. Um, it just happens that mine tend to be in the music industry. So, Jake, I have to ask you. There's about one yes. or two authors, or authors, I mean, one or two books that you've uh, written about that I have to ask you about, about okay. uh, musicians. And there's one in particular that I'm looking at who's been in the news as of late, quite lately, and that's Kanye. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Kanye West. Um, so... 
Kanye West has bipolar disorder, and I don't want to be. He's he's as much talked about that because he's so erratic. He's a genius musically, and I think when he's just making music, he's great. Um, the book bore out the rest, you know, bore out the obvious. When he sticks in the lane of being a record producer, he's great. When he's a jackass and goes on stage and grabs Taylor Swift's award and turns the microphone away from her while she's accepting the award, he, I mean, even Barack Obama called him a jackass, so I'm sort of quoting him. But um, the book that I wrote came out of the time when his mother uh, was, Dr. West was still alive, and she was his manager for the first almost decade of his career, and you see a marked difference in how on track he was then. I don't want to get, like, be libelous at this, but just in, in, in my study of it, uh, he had a lot more straight and narrow, traditional, just music producing and artistry kind of based career. And then, I, you know, I don't really want to talk about him past the the sort of Kardashian era and bless his heart. The guy, you know, it's a, that's a tough disease to live with. And and I mean, his tweets speak for themselves. And yeah. So you know, uh, but you know, sometimes you do books uh, when you're early on in your career writing for a publisher, like just so you can keep getting more gigs and. Um, actually that book is a great lesson in why you do that because it's kind of well, you wash my, scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You know, I could write one for them that they just want to have a book out in the market on him. In turn, I can bring them a project that I want to do and they might take a chance on it as they did by continuing to do more in the studio books of mine. So I kind of did that Kanye West book on a deal that I do Dr. Dre, um, <laughs> in the studio. They would put that out if I wrote Kanye West. Um. Uh, for them. But yeah, so, you know, I, it's an early on book and, and they republished it with like uh, Kanye West, the earlier. So that, that shows you right there where the focus of the book was. It was just on his kind of rise up to, you know, his initial brilliant run of, of those first three records, uh, you know, the college dropout record and the, you know, late graduation. The other one uh, escapes my name that had stronger so and all that. You said that you don't want to go on uh, past the Kardashian years, but um, could I you? just meant in terms of I'm not really educated on it, and I didn't write on it, and so oh, okay. I just don't really I don't really know anything about it that would be okay. Okay. I, so my question was going to be, I mean, could you write on it if you had the opportunity or or anything like that? Would I? Uh, well, I, I was just saying, I mean, could you uh, if you did? Yeah, no, I wouldn't. I, I, you know, it's. I'll give you another example. I did a book on R. Kelly uh, in 2004. It's my second published book, and I wouldn't touch that book again with a 20-foot pole. I mean, it, when you're early on in a, in a career, like actors, writers, musicians, whoever, you take whatever comes your way, whether it be a part, whether it be a book project, whether it be you know record gig that you're producing or recording. I mean, you take whatever work comes your way because it's just what you do. There's just no way around it. If you want to learn and you want to learn the business, you want to. So that was an example. <laughs> Kanye was an example of that. I wish I could give you a more salacious answer, but I just don't have one, unfortunately. Sure, sure. No worries. And then also uh, you wrote about another guy who's probably one of the most talented people that I've ever seen. And I've gotten to see him in concert. He came to Kansas City a few years ago, and I just was completely blown away by him. And that's Jimmy Buffett. Yeah, um, that was in this book. Uh, we interviewed Norbert Putnam, uh, who produced Margaritaville, and um, that 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 part of the book it must be ten pages long uh, because the song had such an elaborate production process. They recorded a lot of it on a boat, actually, down in Florida. Um, and then it, it's kind of interesting. There was a bit of a Frankenstein because then it came back to Nashville and, and Norbert uh, worked on a summit quad. They added strings. But he had a different band come down and play with Jimmy than his usual players to add that island flavor. And it was just such an iconic song that we wanted to get that. But when I was talking to Norbert and in his chapter, you hear all of these. And he's got his own books you can read, too, about his career. But 
he recounted uh, some of it for us had to do with playing with Elvis Presley and um, running a legendary studio here called Quad. Um, excuse me one second. And we'll be called right Quad back, right after this. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> he, had, he had a, you know, Quad Studios is where like Dobie Gray's uh, uh, Drift Away was recorded and, you know, Joni Mitchell's uh, The Night They Twirled Dixie Down and Neil Young, Harvest Gold. So Norbert really was a tastemaster. There's other studios he ran, but he talks elaborately about working with Jimmy um, because that was, you know, and that's obviously the song he's best known for. And, you know, Jimmy Buffett, I mean, that's an example of how an artist can really, through one song, find their way into what becomes kind of, a, for him, a cottage industry, right? I mean, it's turned into bars and yeah. restaurants and kind of a, a lifestyle. I think they have clothing lines and flip-flops. And <laughs> I don't think there's anything in Margaritaville sort of that hasn't been franchised. And um, so that's really the magic of a producer to see the, the, the sort of vision in advance of the song of what it could be and then putting everything musically into it that was necessary uh, you know, to make it what it became. Um, and you, and uh, that, that's really... Oh, no, sorry. go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. Oh, no, no, that's really it. I mean, he was oh, okay, great. Gotcha. gotcha. No, so, so I was just going to ask you, I mean, you hear these artists that I like, that have like one or two songs in their career that everybody knows it becomes big hits. And, um, since you've been in music and in the whole music industry for quite some time, and uh, I know how hard it is to to get a song out there that's universally loved, but um, do you ever wish that uh, we could go past this besides being, them being like a, a, a one, one-trick pony, per se? Uh, you mean like a Jimmy Buffett? Yeah, like a Jimmy Buffett. I think I think if you talk to Jimmy Buffett, he's quite happy with that one trick pony <laughs> because oh, it's hard oh, enough yeah. to break I, I it at all. I agree with well, that. You know, that, that's an interesting question because it, it, it can go both ways. Some artists you talk to are really, really happy to just stay within a genre because a lot of times it took them 10 years to find that genre in that particular right. voice. And, I'm not taking away from that by any means, yeah. Yeah, but, 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 but uh, on the flip side of that, you know, um, you do also get really talented artists that can, you know, move around in a lot of different genres. I mean, I think like some interesting examples of that, uh, in the, in the, I guess not so much in this country music, uh, book, it would more just be styles that became infused into their instrumentals, like Luke Bryan taking on programming and really being a pioneer in that with Jody and Jeff Stevens producing him. Um, but you know, and some of the other artists I've worked with are written with, well, both, um, you know, you get a guy like Joe Satriani. I mean, Joe Satriani, we wrote Strange Beautiful Music, his, his memoir, and my God, that guy is like from another planet. I mean, musically, he's, he, when you talk to a genius and you interview them day after day after day for, for a couple years, you know, in a case of like Joe Satriani, it's talking to like talking to a rocket scientist and you don't necessarily ever have a better understanding of that genius by the time it's done because their mind is just so beyond, um, ours in that particular field of excellence. And in Joe's case, what was so kind about him is that he indulged me and bore with me in that. Because even though I'm a guitar player, I am not a Joe Satriani guitar player. So I can ask him basic questions, but he really was patient. And I think for his fans too, because the concept of that book was for the first time trying to really unravel the mystery of what he does. Um, so a guy like that can do anything. Uh, Prince was an example. I wrote a book with his uh, all of his engineers and some guys from the revolution, like Matt, Dr. Fink, um, and who, you know, and, and some people and you know, these guys would do 18, 20 hour days with Prince, literally sitting there with him side by oh, side. Prince was a perfectionist. Yes. 
Well, he was a perfectionist, but his perfection often came on the first take, too. I mean, he didn't go back and do 85 takes like some people do. He, he really got it right the first or second time, and then he would move on to the next song. I mean, that guy was recording, you know, three, four, five songs in a day. Another artist like that that I wrote on was Tupac, uh, and I interviewed all his producers, uh, Johnny J in particular, worked with him the last eight months of his life when Suge got him out of uh, Dannemora and he was out, you know, at Can-Am. I mean, they were making three or four songs a day and would literally sleep in the studio. Um, you know, there's a book I've got coming up uh, with Teddy Riley. Um, I mentioned, you know, Teddy and Michael Jackson made Dangerous together, and they would they would also work, you know, for 15, 20 hours and then sleep. You know, they had bedrooms built in the studio complex. They'd sleep for a few hours and then come back right to it. So the, these perfectionists are, are, are – there's absolutely perfectionists in the um, – you know, the business like Michael Jackson, like Prince, and, and like a lot of people, but I mean, where they, their level of doing it is so high, Joe Cetriani is another example, um, that they, they can spend, you know, days on one song if they want, because they can afford the lockout time. You have other bands that go in, you know, and knock a record out in two weeks, and it's just as successful. So it can go both ways. It's definitely, I've seen it done, you know, well, producers are amazing, because they have to have the patience to either spend as much time as it takes to get a song right. And that could be with an inexperienced artist who's just starting out, but then they know it could be a big hit. And on the other hand, they have to be able to work like in Nashville, you know, a session band will come in and knock out three songs. There's a funny story in the book. Uh, I don't know if I touched on it before, Darius Rucker, when he first uh, was doing his country records with uh, Frank Rogers and they, the first time they were working together, you know, uh, Frank Rogers is in there and they knock out three or four songs in an afternoon with the band and, and, at the end of the day, Darius was just standing there, like sitting there, just like looking at him with wide eyes, like, man, if in, in the Hootie and Blowfish days, it takes us a day just to get drum sounds. So it shows you the music machine that is, you know, Music Row and that is Nashville between the songwriters and producers. Down on Music Row, they just turn out, you know, I mean, there's two country charts. So they like week in and out, different number ones are happening. So they have to really be able to bang out, you know, uh, uh, songs just like rapidly um and then on the other hand you get songs like miranda lambert's the house that built me tom douglas spent a year writing that song you know so it, it, it can definitely go both ways um so there's one artist that uh we absolutely love well actually before i touch on that um yeah. i uh want to ask you about someone or rather a few people that uh i don't think you've written about but i think you may know quite a bit about them and that's the the rap pack Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., and because uh, I'm always interested in in in, in them. Sure. Um, well, I'll tell you the the in, in what way do you want to? What would you like to ask about them? Well, what I'm asking is um, just about their life outside of what we know about them. Hmm. Um. You know, I don't know that I can speak as educatedly on that because I haven't written books on on Sammy Davis Jr. or Frank Sinatra or any of those sure, people. Sure. The people I the people I've interviewed that have worked with them, uh, you know, these are guys who who grew up in an era where you played sometimes two sets a night. So as much fun as they're legendary for having, they worked their butts off and they and they knew how to go up on stage and entertain people for hours and be like perfect every song out every performance out and every studio take out i mean so you know uh, frank sinatra could go in in a recording session and knock out you know three or four my ways if you will in a day you know what i mean yeah um so it, it that was a remarkable <laughs> bunch i mean i don't know that you're ever going to replicate that again oh no just because they were they were the first of their kind and and that group of people would be hard to 
recreate uh, with the way that today's, you know, people are more of an indie. I and mean, you could say that, you could say like if a super group, if three or four stars got together in a band, but it really is a rare thing. I mean, it's as rare as those guys. You know? I know. I mean, so you don't see like bands like today of, of like the Beatles or you don't see like... Um, another great example. Yeah, another, yeah. I mean, you don't see bands like that anymore today. Um, I will tell you, I, I interviewed Vince Gill this morning for National Songwriter 3. And he's right now in the Eagles. He replaced Glenn Fry. Uh, well, I say replaced. He he was called upon by the band to come and and, and help. <laughs> you know, uh, and he himself very modest about you can't really ever fill those shoes. But that you know, the Eagles is a great example of a group that's still doing it. You got Absolutely, yeah. Don Henley, got Joe Walsh. You had Glenn Fry. You've got other people in that group like Vince Gill now who have their own careers. So they do exist, but they exist on a really rare level, as they should. You know, or else everyone would be doing it. And, you know, to your point, there's a lot of people that have tried to be supergroups and just it just didn't work. You know, I mean, there's there's been a there was a trend of that going on in the early 2000s that got irritating because they would call a supergroup like the bass player from, you know, Warrant and the, you know, the guitar player from Vixen in the hair metal world. And it's like, that's not a supergroup. When, when you talk about supergroups, I mean, I, I think of like Motown. Like uh, yeah, exactly. Dreams, the, the Temptations, and actually the exactly. Temptations are still still kind of touring today. Yeah, yeah, the, and 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 the term does the term does have present day applications. There's just not that many of them anymore. Yeah, and right. you're right. Most right. of them, most of them that are out there are doing it. Um, you know, in a in a sort of uh, you know legacy fashion. Um, you do have things like Joe Satriani's G3 tour, where he which he invented. Um, that, that still plays today all over the world. And like Steve Vai will go out on that or Robert Cray or, you know, Phil Collins from Def Leppard. There's, and then you also, i tell you another guy I interviewed for uh, the upcoming Beyond the Beats too, Stevie Ray Vaughan's drummer, Chris Whipper Layton. He plays in what's called the Hendrix Experience and they tour the globe. And these are all world-class musicians, famous musicians that just recreate Jimi Hendrix songs to the best, you know, to an amazing degree. And, um, you know, you, you definitely have <laughs> have those kinds of, of team-ups. And then there's another book I've got coming up I wrote with Willie Dixon's estate, Tomiko Dixon, called The Real Blues. And they talk about the uh, folk uh, blues folk festival in Europe and that Willie Dixon put together and brought all of those amazing artists over for the first time, uh, Muddy Waters and, you know, all of these, these legends to uh, play for European audiences. And because of the racism at the time in the United States, um, they were much better treated and received over there, you know. So um, supergroups kind of exist today, I think, more on live stages than they necessarily do on record, you know. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So I mean, they they exist. They're just not that common. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there seem to be of the older uh, tendencies, uh, bands who have been around for a while. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, so there's there was one other group that I wanted to ask you about that my yeah, parents really sure. love. And uh, we're big Lincoln Brewster fans, and that's okay. Journey. Journey. I know that Lincoln Brewster used to be part of uh, the group Journey, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, at one point they've had they've had a pretty good revolving lineup. I mean, Neil Scott's been there forever, and and um, the other guys. But you know, they have a they have a Japanese. Uh, <clears throat> their singer is a Japanese cover singer, but he sounds just like Steve Perry. And there is now, you know, there is an interesting pedigree of groups like Guns N' Roses, uh, obviously has reunited, but for years Axel toured with a bunch of really great players under the, because he owned the name. Um, but it's been more accepted, I think, when these singers die early, as an example, Scott Weiland, you know, died, and then STP had Chester Bennington, and now a guy named Jeff Goode, uh, who sings, and they sound just like Weiland. Allison Chains, of course, you know, has a new has had a new singer for 20 years, and, and it's really a testament to the fans that they love that music so much that they're willing to 
you know, if they see four or five of the original guys up there, three or four of the original players, that they're willing to still listen, you know, and they want to hear the music. And if they can hear a voice that sounds like the singer and they have enough of the other band members, they'll accept it. Oh, um, yeah. You know, yeah. That's really cool. Absolutely. Well, um, so, Jake, uh, just one more time. Uh, what is the name of your 50th book? Yeah, it's Behind the Boards Nashville. Uh, Blackstone Audio has a uh, two-volume uh, audio book if you're not really a reader, but you want to just listen instead, which is totally cool. Uh, there's an e-book out. The physical book will be out here in the next few weeks. This COVID thing screwed up all of the publishing uh, <laughs> release dates because all the press yeah. plants shut down for two months. So, But you can find it out there if you wanted it there. And I try to give as many formats as possible because a lot of people are not just sit-down readers. Um, and it's a long book, so you know you're also free. If you're just a Tim McGraw fan, then just go to Tim McGraw's chapter. If you're just a Luke Bryan fan, feel free to just go to Luke Bryan's. They're all the hits are there though, and you can stream along while you listen to them. Um, and, and, and so that's really cool because it gives you a really cool interactive way to appreciate um, how much work goes into that three and a half minutes you hear at the end of the day. How much work goes into like making that song? It's remarkable. Just a remarkable group of people, these producers, and I felt that they deserved a finally kind of a definitive spotlight and tell their backstories and the stories behind their hits and their creative process, and those are the artists they work with. So I'm really proud of it as a, as a 50th uh, uh, book landmark. It's kind of a love letter to my hometown, too. And then Tim Tim McGraw, you mentioned him. His dad was baseball pitcher Tug McGraw. And, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I think that to some people uh, might not know that, but... Uh, he actually was the pitcher, the winning pitcher for the 1980 World Series against my Kansas City Royals. He definitely was. <laughs> he definitely was. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of in this interesting pedigree where these stars come from, and 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 you know they don't all come from musical families. Some some are one-offs. You know. Yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Well, uh, Jake, uh, thank you so much for your time, sir, for coming on. Uh, feel free to come back at any given time. Uh, you're more than welcome to come on. And um, uh, and where where can people find the book at? Uh, well, you can you can definitely get it through Audible, through Amazon.com, through all the e-readers that are out there, Nook or whatever the different formats. Uh, you just Google it, and it, it pops up with a bunch of options. And then also, if you're just interested in listening to the producers more tell these stories and have to read them, we've got over 100 videos on YouTube, on the YouTube channel, um, that, for Jake Brown Books' YouTube channel, that give you just straight from the producer, enough to even hear from me. <laughs> and you can just hear them, and they tell you... Uh, you know, the stories behind the making of these songs. And I look forward to, to getting that link. I'm a big, big fan of your show, and I, I think you have such a great group of guests. It's an honor to be included among them. I oh, appreciate well, you. you're very kind, Jake. Thank you so much, sir. That means, a, right. lot. That means a lot. All right. Well, thank you again. Keep doing what you're doing, and uh, we, we all appreciate you. Oh, thank you so much, Jake. God bless you, sir. All right. Have a nice day. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you like what you heard, tell your friends and have them like the Great Scott Podcast Facebook page. That's where you can find information on Mike's upcoming entertainment podcasts.